1: Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Pursuing your future doesn't end at 40. In fact, it may mark the beginning of knowing who you are, what you're capable of, and what you really want. But knowing what's next and how to get there can be a challenge, especially when old narratives play on repeat. Liberty Road is here to share stories so that you can consider your possibilities, pursue your purpose, and move into your future with intention. I'm your host, Netta Jones, and we're here to listen, learn, and liberate dreams one episode at a time. Well, hello, Liberty listeners. Welcome to another episode of Liberty Road. Today, you actually get to hear from a friend of mine, Dr. Regina Baker. And I've been wanting to have Dr. Regina Baker on the show because I know in this kind of midlife space, it's one of the times, maybe the first time in our life that we're really thinking about our bodies, the way we look, we're not recognizing ourselves uh, as we walk by a window or a mirror in the same way. And I think like so many things that women don't agree on, this can be one of them. And what happens when we feel uncomfortable with getting all the information is it keeps us from educating ourselves. And I wanted to have Regina on to talk about plastic surgery, all about plastic surgery. Obviously, this is not a prescriptive uh, podcast. This is one where we want to educate you and give you all the information so that you can go out and make your own decisions. But what we do want to do really well is make sure that you are equipped with what you need so that you can make those decisions. So by no means are we suggesting that you should or shouldn't do anything. We just wanna give you the facts and who better than Dr. Baker to get those from. So Regina, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Netta. We're very excited to be part of your podcast and thank you for inviting me.
1: Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about the specifics of your practice as a plastic surgeon.
0: So I am part of USC Plastic Surgery and uh, reconstructive surgery. So my practice is mainly in the community satellite locations for USC. So Pasadena and uh, Verdugo, which is in Glendale, La Cuniana area. I do about 50% cosmetics and 50% reconstructive. So most of the reconstructive work I do is in regards to breast reconstruction after breast cancer care. Mm. A large part of my practice uh, is on reconstruction. The other aspect is cosmetic, and that could be anything from uh, facial cosmetics, invasive, surgical, non-invasive, as well as um, body, body contouring, breast surgery, uh, breast augmentation, breast reduction, uh, and then tummy tucks and basically arm surgery, thigh surgery, buttock surgery. Yeah. So um, that's sort of my main focus in the world of plastic surgery.
1: Okay. Well, you have brought up all the things I'm going to ask about, like almost in order. Um, and we'll go through what each of those are because we always tell women's origin stories on this show. Give us a little bit of the background behind the, the young mind uh, of Regina. Like, did she always want to be a doctor? What was that story?
0: No, I didn't always want to be a doctor. And in fact, um, I went to college basically as an undeclared major during college. I really enjoyed the sciences and uh, believe it or not, I loved like organic chemistry and all of these classes. And so I gravitated towards sciences and decided that I was, would try to go into medicine. I have some family members that are in medicine that are doctors. I always looked up to them and thought, you know, this would be a great profession. So then I applied to medical schools and went to medical school at USC during that time, so when you do medical school, you do you know, your core um, curriculum, but then in the later years of medical school, you do electives and, um, and rotations in different services. And by far, my favorite was being in the operating room and rotating through these surgery rotations. And so pretty soon during my third year of medical school, I decided that I wanted to be a surgeon. And then I did a an amazing rotation through Children's Hospital Los Angeles mm. and worked with the pediatric plastic surgeons there and found this, this amazing experience with these amazing people that really transformed young lives and children and decided, I want to be a plastic surgeon. And then from there, I you know dabbled in different aspects of plastic surgery, did a residency also at USC uh, in plastic surgery. And throughout that process, I honed in on what I thought I would want to have as my specialty or, you know, sub-specializing in certain areas. And so my practice has developed in finding my way through residency and in my first couple of years of um, being an attending surgeon and uh, settled on the type of practice that I have today.
1: And the work that you were doing with children is probably very different than the work that you're doing now with adults. Is it the same sort of outcome in terms of enhancing their life, changing their life? I'm sure some of those stories of children were tragic and awful, and they weren't uh, necessarily something that they were opting for, whether it was a burn patient or something like that. But does it give you that same feeling of purpose?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The work is very different, obviously. Most of the the types of surgery that were done at Children's Hospital were for congenital, a lot of craniofacial deformities or defects. So a lot of cleft lips and palates, microtia, which means um, ear deformity. So it was a lot of head and neck type of reconstruction. Some of the kids that we operate on are so young, you know, just in their first year but you you do make these transformative changes and you can just see it in the parents you know mm-hmm. not so much in the babies but in the parents and how that affects their lives uh going forward and it was something that i really enjoyed there were some other circumstances why i didn't get into craniofacial mm-hmm. mainly i got married had kids and having to do another fellowship in craniofacial and kind of dedicating to that type of work was gonna be a little too much with two surgeons in the family.
1: Yeah, that's right. We should mention your husband is a surgeon too. Do you think any of the kids are gonna end up wanting to go into medicine? Honestly, maybe my daughter, but probably not Ben. That's a lot of doctors in the family. It's awesome though. So we understand like a little bit of that background. It's interesting to me that you didn't know that in undergrad. Like I feel like so many people- that go into medicine have known their whole lives. Like, I always wanted to be a doctor. That's fascinating that you sort of gravitated toward the sciences and then made that decision afterward. Did that mean you had to take a lot of extra classes because you were making that decision later, or were you sort of always chugging along, thinking this is a possibility?
0: Well, it was always on the back of my mind. I just didn't know that I could do it. Yeah. You know, so I went into college... And I knew that I was going to get a bachelor in science. I was going to always have some science classes. And then during, you know, about my sophomore, junior years, when I said, you know what, I'm really serious about this. I need to take my MCATs and figure out if this is really what I want to do. And I think pretty soon, you know, after starting college, I, you know, saw myself going down this road. Yeah. And, and you're right. I mean, a lot of people know from much younger age for example my husband who is a heart surgeon one of his first i think papers that he wrote in elementary school when he was i think in first grade was entitled loved Dub," and it was the whole essay was just loved up loved up like heartbeats
1: oh my god like that was his whole
0: essay and that's what he wrote about because from the age of like six or seven he knew that he wanted to be a heart surgeon wow and that's what he ended up doing.
1: That's amazing. Well, it's nice to know that for our kids who are in, not quite in college yet for you, but for me, as they're approaching that, it's nice to know that you can make those determinations while you're still in college. As I was reading about you professionally, because obviously I, I know you personally, I ran across a quote from you that was, your approach is not a one-size-fits-all approach. And it struck me in two ways. One, I assumed that was the case. And then I was like, well, "If she's saying that, that means it's not the case. It means that some doctors do have sort of a one-size-fits-all approach to whatever procedure they're doing. Why was that a quote that was important for you to state? And what did you mean by that?
0: So I think it's important to realize in any type of plastic surgery, cosmetic surgery, or reconstructive surgery that, you know, everybody's individual. Their anatomies may be different. Mm-hmm. Their expectations may be different for what they want They may have different ideals even for the same type of surgery. So when I see a consult, a patient, Mm -hmm. and we go through uh, what type of surgery they're looking for, it's not going to be just a cookie cutter, like, okay, well, you're going to look like this because all of my patients look like this, you know, for that particular issue that they want to, you know, have addressed. It's mostly you have to take the individual into account, kind of take a look at them, see what they are looking for Mm -hmm. and make sure that they have realistic expectations of what can and can't can't be done because there are things that are impossible to achieve and, you know, you need to set those expectations. And then, you know, based on their anatomy and what they're trying to achieve, the surgical plan will vary.
1: Sure.
0: That's what I mean by it's not just one size fits all. Everybody's a little bit different So, you want to have these conversations, and we modify things in surgery all the time.
1: And I would assume that those conversations are almost, I don't know, I'm sure they've always been necessary, but in this culture that we find ourselves in, where plastic surgery seems to be more accessible to people, and because of, I think, social media and kind of what's happening in pop culture. So where do you, like when somebody comes in and they're showing you a picture, do you sort of have to talk them off the ledge and say, that's not realistic? Or even if we can achieve that through surgery, that's not really the best outcome for you, for your face, for your body type, for your whatever. Do you find yourself in a place at times where you're moving them away from maybe what they originally thought they wanted?
0: Yes. So it's not that common. Uh, because with internet and the information the accessibility of information out there now uh, compared to where it used to be you know even just 10 20 years ago yeah. um, I think people have a lot of information by the time they make it into my office mm. a lot of times they've done a lot of research on on the topic or the type of surgery but there will definitely be occasions where a patient comes in and have unrealistic expectations or goals mm-hmm. that I think are detrimental or not appropriate. And oftentimes the way I phrase it in my practice is, I understand this is what you're looking for, but I just don't think I'm the plastic surgeon mm-hmm. that can give you this kind of result that you're looking for. And so there have been, you know, patients that I do have to turn away and say, look, I just can't give you what you ultimately want.
1: Right. And those decisions are made because they're not medically appropriate or because you feel like maybe they haven't done, this sounds really weird, but almost like the personal work they need to do. Like what they want is not in alignment with maybe like a healthy way of living or I don't know. It's it's a funny thing because all of a sudden now you're playing psychiatrist a little bit if you get into that. Like what is that like for you?
0: As a physician seeing these types of patients, you have to always worry in the back of the mind that they have other psychiatric mm. issues going on, like body dysmorphia, mm. or you know when they have these unrealistic outward look on themselves and uh, want to obtain something that's not attainable yeah. or not where we think should happen. And so, yeah, you, I mean, there's definitely some you know counseling, and like I said, the way I approach that kind of situation is really. To go through risk and benefits, I also um, use a PowerPoint with photographs so that they can see like what a typical, say, a breast augmentation looks like. And if they're asking me for something that I think is gonna be detrimental, mm-hmm. you know, not so much when they're young, but as they get older and how how things are gonna affect their tissue going forward. Right. And I think it's gonna be unhealthy. So, for example, if someone comes in and they want a much larger size implant than I think would be healthy and supported by their anatomy and tissue. I will tell them these are the risks. And I really don't think it's a great idea to go with that size, given your frame and some of the potential future complications. And most of the time, I mean, people are realistic or they'll just say, well, she won't do my surgery. So maybe I'll go somewhere else that will do this kind of surgery. Um, But there are, you know, there are some patients that are a little bit more difficult and challenging for sure.
1: And I would think for you, I mean, to protect your practice and your reputation, it's like, I have to be willing to lose those people, right? I'm a medical professional, like I need to do what? is in line with kind of my own values and being a person of character and integrity. Like it's a funny, it's a funny thing. I think some doctors really don't have to deal with that in the same way that you do. Right.
0: Yeah. And I think a big part of it is just having a good rapport with, and and being uh, very informative when you meet a patient and just talking to them like real human beings, going through what their goals are. And once you have those kinds of conversations, a lot of times you can't kind of, help someone down a ledge, you know, that is like thinking extreme, extreme plastic surgery, this is where I want to be. And you say, well, you know, I mean, let's step back and see like some of the risks and benefits of those. So I think if you have a plastic surgeon that's willing to kind of hear you out, see what you want, and then kind of give you realistic goals and expectations, that's a good start. You know, just talking to them and kind of getting them involved and giving them information. Because a lot of times people just have misinformation,
1: that's the main reason I wanted to do this particular interview with you. And it also strikes me that it behooves you to have that bedside manner that some doctors don't have. Like you really need to have it. They need to trust you if they're going to kind of go with whatever your recommendation is versus what they originally thought they wanted. So I want to break down what I think are some of the concerns I had kind of prefaced this earlier was saying, I think there's two groups of women. And obviously there's some in between and I'm making broad generalizations, but there's one group that's stepping into this midlife space and saying, nope, going to do this naturally, not going to go under the knife for any reason. And there's another group that says, I just want to like what I see in the mirror. Right. And like so many things, where women find themselves in different camps. It doesn't do any good if we just stay isolated in those camps. I think we need to really be able to understand what the options, opportunities are, hear what the other side has to say, and then make an informed decision for ourselves. So I think one of the things people are concerned about, that I'm going to stay all natural camp, is their concern that they're going to look like, and you know what I'm talking about, there's a look, that cat lady sort of look, and they're concerned that they're going to find themselves in a situation where they're unrecognizable. That's one thing. I think with their body, they want to look like themselves when they were younger, not necessarily like a completely altered version of themselves. So I wanted to kind of start in this conversation with you. As somebody who's heard both sides of the story, I'm sure, what's your food for thought to the woman who says, I'm going to do this all natural. I'm not going to ever, you know, go under the knife for any reason.
0: I honestly, if somebody was in that camp, I would say good for them. And this is a personal choice. Yeah. So what we're talking about when we talk about cosmetic surgery, it's basically elective. It's your choice. So no one should be forced to have anything done if that's not what they're looking for. And if they are looking to do procedures, as long as they're, you know, they understand that there are some risks and benefits and you doing too much plastic surgery might make you look like a cat woman. As long as they understand, I think it's perfectly fine to have certain procedures or injectables or anything like that if it makes them feel good about themselves and they know that it is a medical procedure and that there may be some potential risks associated with it. Right. So I would say there's no like right or wrong cap at this point. I think people that are fine going 100% natural for their entire life, like good for them. I think it's great. I would still think that they want to take care of their skin. So sunscreen and moisturizing and, you know, identifying your skin type and doing things like that and still doing it naturally. I think it's great. But for those that want a little help or a little boost, I think that's great as well.
1: And some of those helps and boosts start to feel necessary. I'll be honest. Like, as we age, I'm not just talking about, you know, wanting to look like a rock star when I see myself. I'm talking about things like the drooping eyelid. For some, this is going to happen in their 50s. For some, it's not going to happen until maybe they're in their 70s or 80s. We just don't know. But there are those things that are just slight nips and tucks that don't necessarily show themselves as these severe changes to their face. Can you tell us what some of those things are that people come in for?
0: There is a cosmetic aspect and a functional aspect. Mm. So you bring up droopy eyelids. So if you have droopy eyelids, they may not just look droopy, but it may actually impair your vision. So when it starts affecting your vision and you being able to see more clearly, it might be time to address a cosmetic procedure that is also going to help with your function. Right. Things like eyelids, um, sometimes brow lifts, you know, older men as they age can get really droopy on their eyebrows, as well as our eyelid where their vision is very impaired. And so in those patients, the the thing that might help them with function would be a brow lift and then an eyelid surgery, which is called a blephoplasty, um, which can help them, their eyes open bigger so that they can see more clearly, especially at nighttime when they get very tired and their eyelids get very heavy and things like that. There are cosmetic aspects as well as functional aspects. And then people get Botox to help with wrinkles and lines, especially on the upper part of your face. Those things can help where you know, wrinkles become more prominent as we get older. Now, I will tell you that the patients that are getting Botox and fillers and these kind of uh, non-invasive types of uh, cosmetic surgery procedures are getting younger and younger yeah. because they're seeing a lot of it, especially on social media, on Instagram, and uh, through celebrities. And the other thing is it follows a trend. A long time ago, decades ago, curves were in. You know, right. So women that have more curves more voluminous breasts you know that was kind of a look back then mm-hmm. whereas now a lot of people are looking to not be as curvy be a little thinner or not have their, their breasts be as large right you know and then recently there was a trend towards getting breast implants removed first so for a lot of women that had breast implants placed you know 20 years ago are coming in and wanting to get their breast implants removed, uh, whether for health reasons or just because it's more in trend. Yeah. Less voluptuous sort of look is in. And so um, there seems to be like a trend over time. The same thing with BBLs, Brazilian butt lifts. A lot of people were getting buttock augmentation, Brazilian butt lifts. That trend seems to have slowed down a little bit. It's obviously still very much around, but um, it is, you know, not as much as, I was seeing in the past. And so there's different trends. As far as facelifts and things like that, usually we see um, patients that are wanting to get their faces tightened surgically. Mm -hmm. When they're a little bit older, maybe 60s, 70s, um, sometimes 50s, sometimes even 40s. It just, you know, like you said, everybody's different. Their skin laxity and how they age as far as you know their skin and their structures. will dictate when a person might want to undergo that type of an operation. But with so much non-invasive tools out there, so things like mini facelifts, threading, lasers.
1: What is a mini facelift? I was just going to ask you what that was. Is there still an incision and they're pulling the skin or what what are you doing? Well, you can do any of that. I
0: mean, you can do a limited scar incision, and do just a little bit of tightening, but it's not going to get some of the, the all the areas right. that you want to have addressed. Um, a traditional facelift will address sort of like your mid face, uh, lower face, and neck. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people call like mini facelifts or you know threading, which is just where little barbed threads are inserted under the skin, mm-hmm. and the skin is pulled through small puncture um, wounds rather mm-hmm. than making an incision. So there's all of Those types of non-invasive tools out there today, and they keep coming up with new ones. And then there's, you know, skin rejuvenation with lasers, IPL, microneedling, a combination of all of these, vampire facelifts, which is PRP, using uh, Mm platelet-rich plasma. Mm -hmm. People are starting and doing a lot more plastic surgery, I think, now, because there are things that you can do even without going through like surgery.
1: So those things that you mentioned fall under plastic surgery. Well, they're cosmetic
0: procedures. Okay. They're not surgery, right? So
1: they're not surgery. Procedures. But they're
0: procedures um, that are often uh, performed by plastic surgeons or dermatologists.
1: Do you do those procedures? Uh, Yes. Okay, you do. Yeah,
0: not everything. Um, I work at USC and I have some limited tools and devices in my office, in my practice. Right. So I offer like IPL, um, which is a Mm -hmm. uh, intense pulse light. It's a light that helps rejuvenate your skin and collagen. Uh, And then we also have a non-ablative fractionated laser called Resurfix that I use. And it has different settings to treat different types of um, things. And then I do uh, Botox and fillers in the office. Okay. But a lot of plastic surgeons that have big plastic surgery cosmetic practices will have a lot more tools, such as CoolSculpt, which freezes away fat. They'll do other types of lasers, microneedling, PRP. They even have heat to treat fat. So these are like minimally invasive ways of kind of accomplishing liposuction without having to undergo surgery per se.
1: So that's an interesting line between like the work of a dermatologist, the work of a med spa and the work of, I mean, you're obviously doing things that are the most invasive, right? But there's an interesting blurred line there. Do most cosmetic surgeons sort of have a clear line like I do from this point forward, or do a lot of them play in those other areas?
0: There is a lot of crossover. So for example, you don't have to be a plastic surgeon to inject Botox. Sure. You don't have to be a surgeon at all. You don't even have to be a dermatologist. So there are, you know, family practice doctors or OBGYNs that will offer Botox in their office for, you know, their patients. And it's perfectly fine if you know what you're doing. Uh And so there's a lot of crossover. So, and it's not just plastic surgery and dermatology, but you have oculoplastic surgeons who are ophthalmologists who do a lot of the brow lifts, Mm. the the blephoplasties, and under-eye bags, and they may focus on that. You have ENT surgeons who do brow lifts, eyelids, noses, you know, and facelifts. So there's a lot of crossovers. The kind of surgeries that I offer do fall in the realm of plastic surgery. Now, there are things that I don't perform, because I don't perform them on a regular basis, I was trained to do them, but I don't do it in my practice. So if somebody came to me for a rhinoplasty, I know that I'm going to send them to someone else because that's not a procedure that I do.
1: And a rhinoplasty, for those who don't know, is a nose. It's a nose job. Okay.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whether it be for like, uh, because you have a, a deviated septum that causes that, right. that, where you have difficulty breathing and sleeping at nighttime, or it's just for cosmetics. Right. Right.
1: You know, so I don't
0: really do those surgeries, and I will refer those um, surgeries out to a cosmetic surgeon or an ENT that does specialize in that area.
1: Okay, I want to play a game with you really quickly. I want to go through because you're mentioning a lot of these procedures, so I'm just going to go through them in bo- body parts, sectioning them in body parts. So for the face, you've talked about an eye brow lift. What is that called? So it's just called a, a brow lift. A brow lift. Yeah. Okay. And o-
0: oftentimes it can be done endoscopically. So meaning that little cameras are inserted on the, within your hair, scalp, hair bearing scalp, and it's tunneled down to your forehead and the skin of your forehead is then lifted. And sometimes we use these things called endotines, which are like little things that go in the skull so that the skin stays up and lifted. Um, so that's a brow lift.
1: Okay. And then the eyelid procedure? Yeah. So the eyelid
0: procedure can be upper or lower eyelid surgery. So an upper eyelid surgery would be called an upper blephoplasty. If you're addressing bags under your eye or excess skin under your eye, you can tighten that up or get rid of the the fat under your eyes, which are the the eye bags, um, through a lower blephoplasty. And then if you have other things such as what's called lid ptosis, so if your eye lid muscle, not just the skin, but the muscle itself is weak and it covers your pupil and now you have impaired vision as a result of it, oftentimes you can do the blephoplasty where you remove the skin but also fix the muscle so that you have uh, functional improvement.
1: And all of these functional improvements We can use insurance for those procedures?
0: It depends on the type of insurance you have and what that covers and what your functional limitations are. So yes, if you are, your vision is um, significantly impaired because you have Mm -hmm. a lot of excess skin or that ptosis where your eyelid muscle just Mm -hmm. weakens over time and now it covers your your eye and you can't see. So oftentimes those will be covered through your insurance because it's medically necessary for your vision, Uh, just like needing glasses, whereas like a lower blephaloplasty or a brow lift, you know, sometimes a brow lift can be covered, you know, usually if it's really, really bad and it does uh, affect vision. um, Usually lower eyelid is more cosmetic. There's not a functional improvement when you do lower eyelid surgery. So those types of things are not covered. Facelifts, usually, you know, facelifts and injectables and things like that usually aren't covered unless um, there's a a strong medical necessity.
1: When would you do surgery under the eye versus filler under the eye? Like what for our listener who's like, well, I have, I mean, I have it. I have like that kind of shallow hollowing that's happening as I age. Which one am I to be looking at?
0: Right. So you want to have a discussion with your plastic surgeon because they would need to do a good eye exam. Mm Mm-hmm. So the reason to do a blephoplasty, a lower eyelid surgery, is because you have herniation of the fat pad. So around your lower eyelid, there is uh, some fat that is held by this kind of a strong layer of tissue. And as Mm -hmm. we get older, that tissue gets weaker. So what happens is that fat kind of bulges out or herniates like in that space. And so it makes your eyes look puffy. There's more fatty deposit there. So, if we're trying to remove that fat as opposed to just masking a little bit of dark circles, you probably would benefit from having a lower blood flippancy. Now, if you just have a little bit of what's called tear troughing or a little bit of you know shadowing under your mm-hmm. eye, and it's not really the prominence of fat, or somebody that's had previous lower blephoplasty, and they just have this kind of like a little dark circle. uh, They're probably better off doing something like some fillers or even like fat grafting, if you're doing it under surgery, to fill out that that space.
1: And fat grafting is literally taking fat from another part of our body and filling it in.
0: Yeah, you can inject fat, into pretty much any part of your body. But as far as the the face goes, the common areas that we might do some fat grafting, and oftentimes this is in combination with, say, like a facelift. So if you're already having surgery and you're having a facelift, um, we'll just take a little bit of fat, usually from the tummy. Areas that we inject are possibly under the eye and the tear trough area. Um, These things called the nasolabial folds, which are kind of, you know, in the sides of our nose down, it's the little parentheses that you see uh-huh. in, the, in the middle. The
1: marionette lines. Though. The marionette lines are
0: actually the ones here. in the lower part of your your face. Like
1: okay, literally like a puppet. Got it. Yeah, yeah, like a little puppet. Yeah. So we can inject
0: those with fat. Sometimes if, you know, especially in older patients, their lip volume is also affected and they have these little vertical mm-hmm. lines across the top of their lip. Mm-hmm. And so um, sometimes we can put just a small bit of fat in the upper lip or possibly the lower lip to try to help with the vertical wrinkles that run across the upper lip.
1: Is there a benefit from your own fat to some other uh, product that's not from within your body?
0: Well, you, you can expect some of the fat to disappear, meaning that all okay. of the fat that you put in, some of it usually goes away. But about a fifty to seven percent retention is pretty standard. The difference is with fillers; if you're getting them, they're for sure going to dissolve in a period of time. Okay. So they last maybe ten to fifteen months, depending on which kind okay. of filler. Sometimes they can. Some other fillers can last a little bit longer. But with the fat grafting, the idea is that. You don't have to keep getting it every, you know, year or a year and a half or two years.
1: Okay. So let's see. We've done the brows. We've done under the eyes. We've done the eyelid. Let's talk about cheek. What are the cheek implants that we see people doing? Is the intention that it's pulling everything up? Yeah.
0: So I think people are staying away from... Implants in general, facial implants, mm-hmm. or people used to get buttock implants too, and they would erode and have all kinds of problems. So I think what most people are doing now is using injectables. Okay. okay. So you can use a filler product specifically made to enhance the cheek, the central kind of high cheek area. And mm-hmm. when you do that, the idea is you fill that with volume and then it pulls your skin out And then it helps soften up some of the like the nasolabial grooves, which we talked about, are the little parentheses in the front of your face, because everything gets pulled up a little bit by putting in some volume. You know, these filler companies make thicker fillers because you Mm -hmm. would use a different kind of filler for that than you would use, say, for lip injections. Okay. And those things help tighten your face without actually doing a facelift. Now you do have to be careful because if you have a very boxy face or if you have a very square face. The last thing you probably want to do is add more volume into your cheeks because then that might accentuate things and it it might not look good. So again, not one size fits all. You have to tailor it to what people start with and what they look like and then kind of tailor their uh, treatments accordingly.
1: Right. Because the people are coming in to look better, whatever they think better is. They're not coming in just to get filler. Filler is the answer to something else. Yeah. So we've done cheeks, you talked about lips, chin. Let's talk about chin and neck. What are some other procedures that we can do for our chin and neck? So I'm 55. So everybody that I know is starting to complain about, "Oh, I didn't realize, you know, I used to have a, a a distinction between my chin and my neck and now I'm losing that distinction." Yeah. And then some people are getting, you know, the literally multiple chin kind of thing. So what are some things to think about?
0: Depending on exactly what the problem is. So if you have a little bit of fat or loose skin, under your chin, you can try non-invasive chemicals like uh, Kybella, which is um, a product that kind of dissolves fat, particularly in the, okay. the in small areas. So it's just an injection. It's just an injection of this chemical that kind of melts the fat. And so you get kind of that less volume just underneath your chin. Some people might have what's called like turkey necks and have this kind of weakening mm-hmm. of their muscles called your platysmus muscle in your neck. And when you get that separation, you get kind of these two bands that happen on your neck, okay? And so if that's pretty bad and the muscle is spread and you get these big lines across uh, vertically, you can do surgery by making a little incision under your chin and tightening up that muscle, okay? Okay. Now, if you have a lot of excess skin on your neck on top of all of these other things, then probably the best thing is going to be to do a neck lift, which is okay. basically a scarf, you know, in front of your ear, behind your ear, into your lower hairline, where the skin is just lifted and then removed so that everything is tight. And in doing that, you also repair the muscle most of the time.
1: Okay. Okay. Such an education. Okay, so then we go down a little bit. Before we get to the breasts, I want to talk about the arms because you mentioned that earlier. What is that procedure called? I assume that's kind of underneath here. What used to be nice and taut is now drooping in the opposite direction of a muscle.
0: It's usually called a brachioplasty if you're having surgery for it.
1: Now, Mm -hmm.
0: patients that have large volume in their arms, and sometimes they may benefit from just doing liposuction, Okay, or something like cold sculpt, which is freezing in an office procedure, uh, mm-hmm. but getting rid of the fat. Now, if you have droopy skin with the fat, then the only way to really take care of that, and depending on the degree of how much right. droop skin you have, but a brachioplasty is a way where an incision is placed from your elbow down into your armpit, mm-hmm. along the inner part of your arm, and we basically just take all of the skin and fat, remove it, and then there's a scar that goes along the inner arm.
1: Okay. And I would think that a lot of these things that you're talking about, especially as we get into the lower body, can be a result of weight loss, like people who've had severe weight loss. I mean, maybe that was from a procedure. Maybe they did something um, where all of a sudden their tummy, their arms, you know, things like that are more and more droopy, what do we do with all that excess skin? Yeah.
0: You know, we have more patients um, undergoing bariatric surgery Mm -hmm. for weight loss. When they have these types of Bariatric surgeries, oftentimes the weight loss can be profound.
1: These are like the bands around their intestines. Is that where the bands yeah, are? Yeah, so there's a
0: lap okay. there's a lap band which is around their stomach. Okay. The size of the stomach is reduced through a lap band. You can do what's called a gastric sleeve, which is basically making your stomach smaller by actually okay. removing parts of the stomach. And then there's bypass surgery where, you know, your intestines are bypassed. And depending on how you respond to this kind of surgery, you can lose a tremendous amount of weight and if you lose it very rapidly oftentimes it will leave you with excess skin just you know imagine somebody that is a lot larger they lose weight very rapidly their skin doesn't quite contract back down to what they used to be then you're now left with a lot of extra skin and Exercise won't get rid of that. Nothing, you know, will get rid of it aside from surgery. Okay, Brachioplasty is one of the surgeries that we can offer. Um, if they have a lot of, you know, they call it bat wings, mm-hmm. in this arm excess tissue, we can remove that through a brachioplasty. Other parts that are affected by massive weight loss is going to be the breast. They can become empty and droopy. Yeah, And so we can lift them, which is called a mastopexy, or put implants in there to you know, balance them out with more volume that they lost through weight loss, uh, a tummy tuck, and you know a lot of. Sometimes, if you lose a lot of weight and there's still all that skin that's folding on itself, you can get what's called paniculitis, which means infections under the skin mm-hmm. folding under the tummy. Yeah. And so, if those get really bad, uh, for functional reasons and uh, for medical reasons. Those kinds of things can be covered through insurance because they're medically necessary if you're getting infections and things like that. But we can do tummy tucks to kind of tighten the tummy tissue, repair the rectus abdominis muscle, which have been kind of affected by the weight, sure. the weight loss, and even pregnancies. You can get the separation of muscle. I was going to say. Yeah. And so we can repair those like an internal corset by putting some sutures in there and fixing the, the muscle.
1: Okay, go back to the breasts really quickly. So there's reconstructive, there's a lift, Mm -hmm. and then there's implants. Like those are the ones I think we hear of the most often. And then there's also those that you're removing the implants. Is that also called reconstructive?
0: When we talk about breast reconstruction, we're mostly talking about breast cancer. Yeah. If you need a lumpectomy, which means just removing the tumor Mm -hmm. or a mastectomy where you're removing the whole breast, we can offer some reconstruction either at the same time or after. So for example, if a uh, patient with large, not so perky breasts get diagnosed with breast cancer and they need a lumpectomy. Okay. So they're not removing their entire breast, but they're removing portions of it. If we remove that portion, the tumor, then they're probably getting left a little bit asymmetric, meaning that one breast is going to be smaller. Sure. The plastic surgeon can be involved where you do a reduction on the other side and kind of do this um, plastic surgery to lift to the breast mm. and make them more match for cancer care. And that's okay. considered reconstruction, even though ultimately you're doing a breast reduction.
1: Okay. Okay. okay.
0: With mastectomy is the same thing. Oftentimes you can use implants, tissue expanders, implants, or you can use your own tissue for to reconstruct the breast after having a mastectomy. You can do nipple reconstruction and lots of other things mm-hmm. uh, to reconstruct your breast. So that's usually what we talk about breast reconstruction. And then there's breast reduction. So if you have large breasts and you have back pain, neck pain, shoulder pain, and you know infections under your breast, oftentimes you can have a breast reduction. When you have a breast reduction. Oftentimes, and most often, you get a lift. So that's another benefit is that your breasts not only will be lighter and smaller if they're very, very large, they will also probably look better
1: as well. If you're having that chronic neck-back pain, does that fall under the functional side too? Yeah,
0: oftentimes. And it depends on how, how large the breasts are. Oftentimes, insurance will want to see how large you are. So they ask for photographs. Because they mm-hmm. want to determine whether this is functional, medically necessary, or if it's or just cosmetic. cosmetic because yeah. again, you get that lift when you do a reduction. Yeah. So they want to know that you're actually going to be taking out breast tissue to help alleviate back pain, neck pain, shoulder pain, and not just removing skin and lifting the
1: breast. Right. right.
0: Oftentimes, a lot of my patients that I see through uh, my practice will have insurance cover their breast reduction.
1: And then there's the obvious implants that we know about. What do you call when you're taking the implants out? Is that called augmentation as well?
0: Augmentation mammoplasty means that um, you're enhancing or augmenting the breast size.
1: It's in the positive section, right? Right. on the positive side, not the negative, in terms of the direction you're going in breast size. Right,
0: and you can do that via using implants or you mm-hmm. can do that using your own fat. Okay. And so you can augment the size of your breast and make them bigger. When patients have implants for a very long time, the implants can get old, they can get hard because now you're starting to develop scar tissue around the implant. And sometimes if that goes on long enough, they might be painful. In those cases, we'll often do an implant explantation. Explantation means you take out the implant and you can do a replacement with new implants. So if you have 30 year old, 20 year old implants, and they were Uncomfortable, the cosmetics don't look so good now, and you know they're getting hard. You can come in and have a replacement, so that's an explantation and then a, a replacement. Okay, sometimes you just want to get rid of them altogether and not have them replaced, but bear in mind you've had them for a long time, and your breasts will likely be smaller and droopier. And right. so, there are things that you can do aside from using implants, like augmentation with fat or a lift. You can do a lift with or without injecting fat to give you more volume. Um, so there are all these different things that you can do.
1: And a lift is called a mastopexy. A mastopexy. Okay. See, we're, we're here to educate. I love it, <laughs> Regina. And then you talked about the tummy tuck and liposuction, which is kind of where I wanted to go. We've already talked about the Brazilian butt, what was it called? Brazilian butt but implant? Lived. But but lift. Lift. <laughs> but lift. And it's interesting that you said that it's kind of going down because it seems to me, and maybe it's more of a celebrity thing than it is ev- like just what we see um, in every day. But it seemed like it was all the rage for a while. And I remember people from my mother's generation saying, oh, to your earlier point, like, how funny is this? Like this used to be a trend. And now now we're seeing it come back. So it's interesting to think about all these things in light of what is trending? Never mind how we feel about the way we want to look and the way we want to approach this. And because we're in this interesting kind of time, I think age and and midlife and beyond is getting a lot of airtime right now. There's been a, a lot of talk around menopause specifically, and around the cosmetic industry talking about pro age, like kind of embracing all of that. And so I. I'm curious about where we're going to find ourselves in a matter of years, really, where a 40-year-old can look one way or another, or probably even more prominent will be a 60-year-old who does work versus a 60, whatever that is, invasive, non-invasive, whatever, or somebody who does no work. And it'll be interesting how we navigate that because we sort of have a sense, I think, now of what a 40, a 50, a 60, even a 70-year-old looks like. But as cosmetic surgeries and uh, procedures become more and more available to people and there's more and more of them to choose from, that gap will widen. Is there anything that you, from a medical perspective are concerned about, or think this is amazing, this is gonna democratize you know, what's available to people. It's not just available to people who can afford it. Like, what's your sort of outlook as somebody who, from a professional point of view, is like deeply embedded in, in this work? And, and you have a daughter too. And I don't mean to exclude men from this conversation, but it seems that it's something that women spend more time on than men. So I'm just curious what your thoughts are.
0: I think with um, social media and these influences that our kids are getting from a very young age, it's definitely altering our perceptions and ideas about plastic surgery. I think, you know, decades ago, people always hid the fact that they had plastic surgery, right? I mean, it was not something that you talked about or definitely didn't brag about. But now you have all these You know, younger patients, even in their twenties, that come in for cosmetic procedures, and then will post it on their TikTok or their Instagram that they haven't done. And so, I think the language has changed. I think our conversations about plastic surgery has changed. Do I think, like in the future, all of us are going to have that same identical kind of look because everybody's had plastic surgery? Mm -hmm. I don't think so. I don't think you know, in the future, that we're all going to look like cookie cutter, like have a cookie cutter look. But Mm -hmm. um, I don't think plastic surgery is going to go away anytime soon. Yeah. It does get trendy, though. After Christy Teigen came out and, you know, posted that she had her implants removed, oh my gosh, like everybody came to my office and was like, I want to get
1: these implants out. What was her reasoning? Was it just she got tired of them or?
0: Yeah, I think she was tired of them and she wanted to go back to a more natural look. And there was a um, statement made by the FDA, Mm -hmm. the Food and Drug Administration, that stated that there is a umbrella of symptoms that they have to call maybe related to breast implants. Mm-hmm. So it's called breast implant illness, mm-hmm. okay, BII, mm-hmm. okay, or breast implant-associated illness. What they found is that there's number of women that get breast implants and then have other issues that could range from headaches to joint pain to fatigue to anything else, And they have this umbrella of, well, we don't know whether your breast implants are maybe triggering and causing your body to react because they are foreign material and it's causing you to have these kinds of issue. And so they made the statement, Chrissy Teigen took out her implants and people were like, oh my gosh, I don't want these implants anymore. Like, I just want them out. And we're still seeing a lot of that where people are coming in, you know, they've had them in and they're done with them and they feel like, okay, I don't really need to have them replaced." Because let's face it, Christy Tian didn't have have them replaced, (laughs) and uh, you know, and we like her.
1: (laughs) It's interesting the degree of influence these people have over lives, and then you, as a doctor, see the effect of that. Right? That's fascinating to me. That it's not just what lipstick to buy, but it's something that's much more expensive and potentially painful, and they're willing to go to great lengths to deal with this. It's nice to know that just like they had the option to do it, that they have the option to undo it. So thank you for that. I was curious about your perspective. I know how your work has liberated so many people. I can imagine people from the children that you talked about seeing in your early years to people that are, I can see fully, um, or I feel better in my own body. I feel like myself. I feel like the version of myself that, you know, can go out into the world uh, empowered But how has this work and the work that you've done with so many people, how has it liberated you, Regina, the woman?
0: That's a good question. Doing this kind of work is extremely satisfying. When you have those happy patients Mm. where, you know, you can just see the difference that I've made, a lot of my cancer patients, I mean, they come in thinking this is the worst time of my life you know they're completely distraught they're di- they're given a diagnosis of breast cancer they come in feeling like they're going to be mutilated for the rest of their life cuz in their mind their breasts are going to be cut off and mm-hmm. there's not going to be anything there and so when you go through this journey with them and help them along and give them what was taken away from them through cancer and the the relief that you see and the the transformative results. You can't help but feel so grateful that you could do that for somebody. Sure. Okay. So it's not just that. I mean, I, I do a lot of breast reductions in my practice and even patients that, you know, simple as a breast reduction, you know, oftentimes people come in. Um, I had clinic this morning and I had a couple of patients that we did breast reductions on. They come in and they're like, my back pain is gone. My neck pain is gone. I've been living with it for 10 years. And I can tell you that it is significantly improved. My quality of life has changed. And to be able to do that for someone is very liberating. It's very mm-hmm. fulfilling. I can't imagine not doing what I do. Yeah. But um, I'm also very privileged and grateful to be able to provide that kind of service for people.
1: Yeah, as uh, somebody who's had... Too many friends have had to undergo, due to cancer, reconstructive surgery. I'm so grateful that you exist and that you're able to offer that service because I know how important that was to them in in a really dark time. And it's something that we can take for granted that we have available to us. So I'm, I'm glad that it's liberating to you because I know how meaningful it is to so many. And I'm so glad you came on today and gave us this very, very specific education on various forms of plastic surgery. My hope is that through you sharing that our listeners feel a little bit more equipped to make a decision or not make a decision either way, but they have the information they need to do further research and to find a doctor in their area that can help them. So thank you for spending this time with us, Regina.
0: Thank you for having me. This was really,
1: this was fun. I know. It was really fun. I told you. (laughs) (laughs) And you're really good at it too. Liberty listeners, thank you guys too for hanging out with Dr. Baker and myself. We will have information um, on how you can access local plastic surgeons in your area in Regina's show notes. We'll see you guys next week. Bye for now. Liberty Road is broadcast on all platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and more. If you like what you've heard, please follow, rate, and review Liberty Road on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It helps us to know if these episodes are inspiring and equipping your ventures. Liberty Road is produced by Netta Jones and Elizabeth Joy Windham, and music by Jordan Flower.